Thanks for joining us here on the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Steve Horton, and I'm the Communications Director here at Rolling Hills. This week, we continue to celebrate the season of Lent. We're in our second sermon of our Easter series. Although we know Jesus overcame death, we would all do well to take some time reflecting on this part of the story. God has sent His Son to serve a sinful humanity, and man brutally and mercilessly put Him to death. How did God take this bleakest of moments and turn it into good? Scripture holds the answers, and we can't wait to explore them with you today. Who is this Jesus? He claimed to be the Savior, the one the world had been waiting for. His arrival was celebrated, but then everything changed. He was rejected, despised, tortured, crucified, buried in a tomb. Yet in this act, the work was revealed. The promise was fulfilled. He defeated death, rose from the grave, and the world would never be the same. Who is this Jesus? He is who he said he is. He is our savior, our hope, and he is alive. Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. My name is Nick Allen, and I am privileged to be able to call Rolling Hills my church home, and I get to be the campus pastor of this Nashville location. And I'm excited as we enter into what we call week two of our Easter series leading up to what we know is the most important holiday, the most important observance, the, the real hallmark of a foundational faith that we have in Jesus Christ and the fact that he was crucified, but then also resurrected. Many people can remember where they were at significant moments in history. And those in, in my generation, we remember being young adults and, and finding out on the news and on the radio what had happened on 9-11 when the, the Trade Center Towers fell. We understood exactly what happened that day and what was going on, but some people weren't alive during that moment, and so they don't remember. Some folks can remember exactly where they were in significant moments in national history, like when, when the men landed on the moon, like, and they're watching TV with their parents, you know, the big TVs that have the big bubble on the backside, like, they're massive, you know, and they're glued to this black and white television watching people land on the moon, or, or a more tragic event when John F. Kennedy was shot at the conclusion of the first service, I had a woman come up after me, and she said, I remember World War II. She just turned 90 this past year, and so she remembers being a, a young girl when World War II was happening, when it started, when her older cousins went off to battle. Some came home, some didn't, and then when the war ended, you remember where you were in significant moments in history, when specific things happen that affect you and that you understand, but none of us remember being there on Easter because that was thousands of years ago, and yet we stake our life and we celebrate these holidays and these holy observances like Christmas and Easter that we weren't present for, and yet we put our faith in them, and we understand that God allowed them for a reason this morning as we continue turning our attention to that. We're in Mark chapter 15, and I just want you to hear these words that I read. Later on, they'll pop up on the screen as we go through some points and pictures of what it means to follow Christ this season. But listen to these words from Mark 15, starting in verse 21. It says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. 
They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I learned this week that a little bit of myrrh mixed with wine preserves it, but a lot of myrrh mixed with wine makes it impossible to drink. That's what they offered to Jesus, and he refused to take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice, the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And that was a sign hanging above the cross where Jesus was crucified. And Jews had petitioned Pilate, hey, take that sign down. We don't want this guy being known as our king. And yet Pilate said, nope, what I've written, I've written and let it stand. And so the sign, as we'll discover later, written in multiple languages, hung above Jesus's head. It says in verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then most of your modern translations of scripture actually skip verse 28 and go straight into verse 29. And that's because historically the oldest manuscripts that we have of the book of Mark that we can date all the way back to the times of the apostles who are writing them down didn't include this verse. It's actually written down for us in Luke chapter 22. So here we just skip over it and go straight to verse 29. It says, those who passed by hurled insults on him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this king, I can imagine the sarcasm in their voices, this king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults. On him, Father, this morning, as we dive into these words and what we understand them to be, an invitation to know and to trust and to follow you, Jesus, as not only the King of Israel, but the King of our own lives. Father, I pray that you would use these words to draw us closer to faith in your Son, that we may know him and that we may follow him. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen. So Pastor Jeff at our Franklin campus kicked off this series last week with a message at the beginning of Mark chapter 15, and today we pick up with a character that you may or may not heard of. Now, my hunch is that even if you haven't read this passage or one of the other gospels that talk about Simon the Cyrene, you've, you've seen it depicted before. If you've ever watched a passion play in the life of a church, or you've ever tuned in to one of the movies that are about Jesus's life and his death, you've seen that moment when a very beaten and bloody Jesus, half naked, carrying his cross down the Via Della Rosa, like literally carrying his torture device on the way to the hill begins to fall several times and the Roman soldiers getting impatient with how long it's taking and getting impatient with how much the crowd is pressing they literally just pick a guy out of it and force him to come and carry the cross beam of Jesus that's this guy Simon the Cyrene and so he comes and you find out well, why is he there He's from a far-off hill country. Scripture says that they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. Well, he was there to offer his own sacrifice at Passover. See, the Bible prescribes three separate times that Jews are to make a pilgrimage from wherever they live in the surrounding area to come to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice and to engage in their own practices of festivals and feasts of worship. The first was Passover. Fifty days later, 50, you get the Feast of Pentecost. And then some months later, you get the, the Feast of Tabernacles, where they all set up tents and they worship God for the way that he led them out of Egypt and the way that he gave them his presence. And the Bible says that he was forced or the Bible says that he was pressed to come and to serve. 
That literally means that he was picked out of the crowd and forced to come. The area that he was from, a city called Cyrene, is in northern Africa in the country of Libya. And so a lot of the artwork that you see and a lot of the movies that you even see surrounding it will have a person with darker skin or someone with African descent playing him. But what we understand about his name being Simon, a good Hebrew name, is that he was probably more likely a descendant of over 100,000 Jews that were relocated there during the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt. You see, between the two testaments, when this whole land was changing power, you get the Greeks that come on the scene and divide it up, and they begin to resettle populations of people that they were in control of. 100,000 Jews were settled in the city of Cyrene, and so those folks would still, under Roman rule now, have to make their pilgrimage to come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice. That name Simon is a Hebrew word. Find it in both the Old and the New Testament, and it's literally the word he who hears or he who obeys. It's the name of my nine-year-old son, and we are knocking on wood and hoping that that is the case with him. He who hears and obeys. And so here's this Jew coming to town to offer a sacrifice. Imagine the roads that he saw lined with people who are being crucified. Imagine the crowds that he encountered as they hurl insults on this one guy that's being paraded down the city towards his own execution. Simon was just there, it's in your notes this morning, to offer a temporary sacrifice, an annual one, one that would cover his life and the life of his family and connect them to God, their creator. He was there to offer a temporary sacrifice, but what he witnessed was the eternal once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. And what's more, he was forced to participate in it. You see, Simon carried a cross that day that very easily should have and could have been his, but he, like you and me, was relieved of its weight. Simon the Cyrene, he was the father of Alexander and of Rufus, and they watched that day as their father picked up the cross and carried it towards Golgotha, which scripture tells us is called the place of the skull. We imagine that it's a hill that literally looks like the face of a skull, and it was where countless executions and crucifixions took place. This Golgotha, place of the skull, in Latin, it's the word calva, which is where we get the word calvary. And that's what I grew up thinking that the hill was called at Calvary. In fact, we sang a song in church when I was growing up. Maybe some of you know it. I sang this to the first crowd, and they looked at me like I was crazy, knowing that some of these people knew it. Over and over, years I spent in vanity and pride. Like we talked about pride at the last series, seven deadly sins. Caring not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing that it was for me, he died on Calvary. And you know that if you sing that song, the reason why we called it Calvary in the song is because Golgotha would have sounded really, really strange. Like we could have gone, mercy there was great and grace was free. Some of y'all know it. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Golgotha. You see, it's weird. Like nobody sang that. Like it would have been really odd. So we sang Calvary. And when I think of Calvary, I don't think of head or skull, even though that's what the root name means. I just think of rescue. And that's ultimately what this Golgotha, this place of the skull, this, this Calvary, this, this head, would one day come to mean. It was a place of divine rescue. Outside of the place that he was from and outside of the names of his children, we know very little about Simon, but we can be certain that he was a sinner. How do we know that? Because all of us are. And, and because scripture is so clear in Romans chapter 
uh, 3, verses uh, 22 and 23, it literally says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We go back to the previous series, which we named after the seven deadly sins. And what we said over and over again, every single week after week after week, was that you can name seven deadly sins, but the truth is that all sin is deadly and all people are sinners. And so we, Romans 6, 23, because of our sin, deserve death, but instead we've been given the eternal life that only comes from Jesus Christ. And this is how this story, this experiment in Mark where Jesus Christ was crucified so that once and for all we might be forgiven. We know very little about Simon, but we do know that he was a sinner. The greatest struggle for the Jew that was living in the Roman world is a struggle that we can probably all get on board with. It was the literal melting pot of people, the melting pot of ways of life with all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of experiences. And because the Jew decided, desired to live a very pure, traceable lineage all the way back to Abraham, and they desired to live a very pure, following the Old Testament laws and restrictions and customs, lifestyle, literally everything about everyone else around them was an offense making it impossible to live a completely pure life, unstained by the world and the culture around you. And everybody was caught up in that kind of sin. Jews often found themselves living between two worlds, straddling two different places. Their desire to be fully committed to the Lord, and yet their desire to live safely in the world called Rome around them. I grew up in North Carolina. Charlotte specifically, we have a theme park there called Carowinds. Some of you have heard me say this before. When you go to Carowinds, you know that the physical address is Charlotte, but you know that the park literally sits on the border of North and South Carolina. In fact, there's a brick walkway that goes right through the middle of the cement sidewalk when you come in. And as kids, this is what we always did, had our seasons pass. As parents took us over to Carowinds, we would go North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, and then we wanted our parents to grab their little Kodak disposable cameras. Some of you know what they were. They were yellow, and you bought them at the Walgreens, and you took a picture, click, and then you had to advance them, and then that's how you, you had no idea what the picture looked like until two weeks later when you went to Walgreens to get it developed in an hour, if you even did that at all, but we would always want mom and dad to take a picture of us going just like this in two places at once. As an adult, I was privileged to be able to go on multiple mission trips to the country in South America called Ecuador. And in the city of Quito, they have a monument to the equator. It's literally because the equator runs through this city. And if you fact find the whole deal, you'll understand that where they set up this giant theme park for people to go to, um, they don't have roller coasters like we did at Carowinds, but they do have overpriced food and souvenirs that you can buy. So it is kind of a theme park. And this monument in the middle of it and brick sidewalks that stem out from all sides so that you can literally go northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. Northern Hemisphere, or you could just straddle the globe and be in two places at once. When Susan and I were young, married, we even have a picture of her standing on one side and me standing on the other, giving, giving a little kiss, like we're standing in two different hemispheres. Y'all think that's sweet? <laughs> the truth is, is that the actual equator, the French, when they came in to tell the Ecuadorians where to set up the monument, were 250 yards off. So two and a half football fields up a hill is this tiny little plaque that says this is the actual equator. So you can get your picture taken on like the wrong two hemispheres and then you can like hike up into the woods and get your picture taken at the correct hemisphere. You know what it's like to, to, straddle, to straddle the fence 
and to live in two places at once. Like Simon and everybody in his day, you and I and everybody in our day, we're, we're plagued by the idea of living in two worlds, how to be completely and totally committed to what we know to be true about Christ, but then also how to live and move and function in this world and have relationships and live life according to our own measures. Here's Simon, named a good, strong Hebrew name, and we know he straddled the fence because here he brings these two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Those aren't strong Hebrew names. Those didn't date all the way back to Isaac and Jacob. They're Latin names. Rufus meaning red and Alexander, the Greek meaning defender of men. We've got a God-fearing Jew who's naming his kids after things of the world. Straddling the fence, being caught in between two places. This is the guy that was compelled, pressed into service, forced to carry the cross of Jesus, and who doesn't leave us any room to straddle the fence. Because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he literally answers his disciples and tells them what it means to truly come after him. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, abandon what's on the other side of the fence, and pick up a cross. Take up their cross and follow me. And make no mistake, when we take up our cross and we follow Jesus, it is on a path just like him of sacrifice. It's on a path of loss. It's on a path of giving up and seeing who Christ is in our lives. Simon was pressed into service and forced to do what the Roman soldier commanded him to do that day. But what he was forced to do in that moment became the invitation to do what God called him to do in the next. Because Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't just carry that cross. He died on it. Jesus died a cruel death in order to accomplish everlasting life. Scripture says it was about nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, when they started that awful plan of nailing him to the cross. Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That means that the story that we're reading this morning is of protos or primary, of first importance to us, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And I read this week that in antiquity, in this season of world history, crucifixion was considered, and gosh, it still is today, right? Considered one of the most brutal and shameful modes of death. It probably originated with the Assyrians or the Babylonians and it was used systematically by the Persians in the 6th century. Alexander the Great, he brought it from there to Eastern Mediterranean countries, and in the 4th century BC, the Phoenicians introduced it to Rome for the next 500 years. Through Roman occupation, this practice of crucifixion would be perfected to what they would consider an art form until it was finally abolished by Constantine in the fourth century after Jesus' crucifixion. During that time was mostly applied to slaves, eventually applied to Christians, always applied to rebels and soldiers who abandoned their posts, but never to Roman citizens. Death, which usually took between six hours and four days was for multiple reasons. It was the after effects of compulsory scourging and maiming because the soldiers got tired of waiting so they would often break their legs or pierce the side or beat the chest. 
Ultimately, the most important thing was progressive asphyxia caused by the impairment of respiratory movement. Eventually, people on the cross would just get too tired and too weak to lift up their bodies wide enough to take a breath. And as their lungs filled with fluid, they would simply suffocate and drown. Because the soldiers didn't want to wait, they wanted to speed up the process. That's why they would often pierce, often beat, often break, just to get it over with already, and sometimes even set the crosses on fire so that the smoke, if those people could breathe, made it not something they would even want to do. And and I look at the pain, and, and I listen to how hard that is to hear or read or even say, but the thing that gets me the most about crucifixion is not how violent it was. I mean, it was. But how voluntary it was. Because Jesus did it willingly. Jesus died a willing death in order to offer to us, to purchase for us, to afford for us forgiveness. It says in the story that in the same way that the chief priest and the teachers of the law, they mocked him among themselves and they were saying, he saved others, why can't he save himself? You who were going to build the temple in three days after it was destroyed, then why don't you come down off the cross? Well, here's why. Because Philippians chapter 2, Paul explains, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He wasn't forced, he volunteered humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus did it willingly. He endured that so that people everywhere might believe. Did you hear him talk about it in that moment? This whole day, hey, hey, this guy really is the Messiah. It's in Mark 15, 32. Let this Messiah, this, this king of Israel, let him, hey, let him come down and save himself that we may see and believe. You see, they had that moment. Like, if he would just save himself, then we might finally believe in him, and maybe that would have happened in that moment. But the point of Jesus enduring the cross wasn't just so that the people they're witnessing that day could believe. It was so that people for all time might have an opportunity to believe. It says in John chapter 19, verse 20, many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, so they all passed it. They all saw it. And the sign was written in Aramaic, common everyday vernacular for Jews, but also in Latin and also in Greek. So that anybody who was passing by that day, anybody who was in the city for festival would have an opportunity to be able to read it. This is your king, this suffering servant, this guy is the one that you're going to label king of the Jews. He seems like nothing but another crucified criminal. And the truth is, is that he was dying in their place on a cross that they deserve. This is a note to all, and it's an important one. It is one of the more difficult things to believe as believers in Jesus Christ. Just because Jesus didn't doesn't mean that he couldn't. Crowds of scoffers that day just assumed that if he could have saved himself, he would have saved himself. And since he didn't save himself, that meant he couldn't save himself. Do not mistake the fact that Jesus didn't do something for a fact that Jesus couldn't 
do something, and that's hard for us. Because there's moments when we, we prayed that grandpa would be healed or that our child would be spared or that the pain would not come. Do not mistake the fact that Jesus didn't do what you asked for weakness that he couldn't do what you asked. Just like then, it's true now, there's always a reason Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. The distance is no longer there. We don't have to be caught between two places. Although it's the hardest concept in Christianity to get behind and to wrap our minds around that why God would allow such pain, that why God would allow us to go through difficulty, that why God wouldn't show up to our rescue every time we find ourselves in a point of desperation. Look at his son. God did not spare his own son that kind of pain. There's always a reason, and God offers an explanation. If you continue in Philippians chapter 2, after verse 8, it starts with verse 9, it says, Therefore, because he willingly submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, that's to confess and to profess faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Truly the only thing. The only thing that can bend our knees in the same direction and unite our words in a single confession, the only thing that's going to unify us is the name of Jesus. The only thing that can bring that together, Romans 5.10 says for that, if while we were God's enemies, literally opposed to God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That idea of reconcile, it, it literally means to make consistent to cause to coexist, to make or to show it comparable, to settle, to cause to submit or accept something unpleasant. You mean like being forced to carry the cross of Jesus? Or, or purpose to die on it for the salvation of sinners? See, Simon submitted to something that was unpleasant that day. He was pressed into difficult service. But it was Christ submitting to the ultimate difficulty that day that makes us reconciled to God. Next week is Palm Sunday. It's the... the the Sunday in the, the Christian calendar where we celebrate Jesus coming into the city, being praised, people waving palm branches, people laying down their coats, people, people shouting that the king had come. And then some of those same crowds, some of those same voices in just a week's time would be shouting, 
crucify him, making fun of him, mocking him as he bloody went down those same streets. And the Sunday after that is Easter, where we don't just celebrate a crucified Christ, we celebrate a resurrected Lord and King. And on that Sunday, God willing, we'll get to celebrate baptism. Somebody stepping into the water to make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus. We don't step into that water because the water somehow has magical powers and reconciles us to the Lord. That's the faith we place in Jesus. But the water in obedience helps us declare to everybody else that we have expressed faith in Christ. I always give some instructions as people are prepping for baptism because, you know, I know they're nervous because they're standing in front of a crowd of people and they're, they're not sure of what they'll have to say and do. So I always explain, hey, when you're in the baptistry, you just hold your own nose because, well, that's always better. It's always better if they hold their own nose because they know how much pressure to apply. They know exactly where to put it. They know what's going to keep them from taking in a whole lot of water when they go underneath it. Because the last thing you want to do on the day of your baptism is come out of the water coughing and snotting all over the place. Like, that would be awful. So I always have them hold their own nose, and then I grab their wrist, put my other hand on their shoulder, and I just remind them, bend your knees. That's it. Just just bend your knees. I'll do the work of taking you back and the water and the buoyancy and some kind of scientific property will help me, no matter how big you are, bring you right back up. It's easy. All you have to do is bend your knees. That's what we do when we come to Christ. That, that's what every person uh, across history and across this globe and across all languages and across all dialects and across all countries is invited to do what Philippians chapter 2 says that at the name of Jesus we would simply bend our knees and then to make that confession regardless of the tongue regardless of the language to say that Jesus Christ is Lord when we go into those waters we're telling the story of what Jesus did for us he died and he rose, and we're illustrating what we are doing for him, bending and confessing that he's it, and that we don't want to live life straddling two worlds anymore, that we're not going to hover over the fence of our way of life and his plan for our lives anymore, but that we are being invited, we are being pressed, we are being reconciled to him so that we can live a life fully committed to him and everything that we say and do. The name of the series is Easter, but the tag is to know and to follow Jesus Christ. That's who we're here for. This morning as we close this time, I want you to hear from a couple who recently had the opportunity to be baptized, to publicly declare their faith and their understanding that God sent his son to die on a cruel cross so that they may be saved and invited to live life for him. Would you turn your attention to the screens? My name is Ryan Francofort. And I'm Jill Francofort. And we've been going to Rolling Hills now going on four years. So I feel like God led us to be baptized. You know, Ryan came home after a men's retreat that he went on. And, you know, we, we sat in our bedroom and I, I heard about the weekend and you know, he, we made the decision, you know, we want to follow Jesus. This is what we want for our family. So that led us a few months later to get baptized in front of our church family and friends. And we couldn't be more grateful for 
the people that God put in our lives to get to that point and, and make, that, make that decision. I think God's going to meet you where you are. You hear that a lot, but it's absolutely true. And I feel like he met me that day of where I was in the wilderness at the men's retreat and spoke to me. And I finally had obedience to listen to what he was saying. And that internally changed me and drove us through this process of wanting to get closer and wanting to be baptized to let people know, like, we love Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus. And yeah, it's been, a, it's been life altering for us in terms of our, the friends we've made, our marriage, the way we raise our kids, and it's just been incredible. For those of you who are on the fence about getting baptized, um, I would say pray about it. You know, God is constantly talking to you. You just need those small moments of silence where you can sit, reflect, and listen to him, and he will put it on your heart as to what you should do and what his will is. So a lot of times that's all it takes is just listening. You know, we have so much noise in this world, um, but it's easy if you, if you want to try to turn that noise off and just listen to him. And he'll tell you the direction. And baptism is probably a direction that he wants you to take to just let others know, right? You proclaim your faith in our Lord and Savior. So we had talked to Kennedy about getting baptized. You know, we, we were just sitting in our home one night and she said, she told Ryan and I, you know, I have Jesus in my heart and I want to follow Jesus. And I'll never forget that moment. God has kind of created a plan for us over these last couple of years of you know, where he wants us to be involved in the church. And, you, you know, a lot of times you may say, oh, I don't have time to do that. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. And you got to embrace the uncomfortable, right? Yeah. You're going to have uncomfortable times during your life. And I think we've learned that you just embrace them and you'll, the experiences you get from that, the rewards are just so much greater than that. So we've been, we've been blessed to be able to be on this journey and, you know, kind of listen to God as he tells us what to do next. Thank you for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If this podcast episode has blessed you in some way, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's Podcast as you go. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time, and God bless.